Hey everyone, welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm your host, Hamel Javeri. With me today is Wade Davis, former NFL player and now a thought leader in all kinds of ideas about gender inclusion, equality, thoughts on masculinity. Um, Wade, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for for having me. And I'm all those things on Wednesday, so thankfully that's what today is. <laughs> it's it's a Wednesday. But you're so much more than that as well. <laughs> <laughs> One would, well, one tries. One definitely tries. Um, so I, I am very familiar with your work, and I have actually followed it for quite a while. But for people listening at home, I wondered if you could give us a brief background on really how you got started in moving, um, moving in this direction and trying to make sports more inclusive for people. Yeah, so it, it really was luck. Um, I had a friend who saw I had got fired from a job. <laughs> Um, and I was literally living off of my $400 a week um, unemployment check. And a friend of mine was like, hey, like you really inspire everyone in the New York Gay Flag League. Um, so why don't you go work with kids and, and do something with, with your life? So I was like, mm, no. <laughs> and then he was like, no, you actually should do something. So I went to volunteer at this place called the Hedrick Martin Institute. Mm-hmm. And it's a youth service a center for kids who identify as LGBTQ. They're homeless. They're marginally housed. They have high risk of HIV and, and AIDS. And um I went there to volunteer and I walked out of there with a with a job and it was the first time that I really had to interrogate like why wasn't I out what was I hiding from and someone gave me my first feminist book mm. it was bell hooks feminist theory from margin to center and it really was the first time I looked kind of deeply at the intersection of sexism and homophobia and masculinity and then uh, Patrick Burke who is the he's the director of player safety for the NHL he was in search of a um of an ED mm-hmm. for the uh, for the You Can Play project. And he reached out and said, hey, we want someone who has experience with LGBTQ youth. We want someone who's a former athlete. Would you come and be the the head of our of our, our org? And I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. You know, there was a part of me that had just kind of come out to my mom, to my dad, to my family, and I didn't know if I was ready to kind of jump head first. Mm-hmm. And what You Can Play does is it works with high schools, colleges, and pro sports teams, educate them about how do you create a safe environment for athletes who identify as LGBTQ. And it was like something that I should have been doing my whole entire life. You know, it was it was a ex- chance to talk to gay and straight athletes and reminded me of like, what that culture was truly like and how do we kind of build a pathway f- way forward. And then I, um, the, the NFL called and said, hey, like we want you to start doing some consulting to educate our, our players on these issues. And then the NHL called and then the CFO called and then all these leagues started to call. And then the, and then the corporate world called. And then now I just am some, someone that, that kind of sits at the intersection of race, of sexual orientation and of gender to try to, have more thoughtful conversations with with people who are really interested in bringing our country together. And I want to focus on your work in in sports leagues just for the purposes of this podcast. But what have you what are some of the things that you have worked on with either NFL teams or NHL teams? Because I know that it's such a tangled web to, to try to, you know, you're dealing with a lot of sensitive egos. You're dealing with a lot of dynamics and a lot of traditions that people don't even realize are so ingrained. Yeah. So. It started out with me doing training. So when when Michael Sam was drafted, the second call that Jeff, that Coach Fisher made was to me. And he said, hey, I want you to come in and do a training for our entire staff. 
And that really started me doing trainings for the Rams, for the Vikings, for the Buccaneers, for the Falcons. I spoke at the owners' meeting. I, I've done workshops there. I've done the, the rookie symposium for both the NHL and the NFL. And it, and what I found was that players were actually interested in having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't afraid of it as long as you created the conditions for them to actually talk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that I was having a really great session when one of the players said, "Hey, like I'm uncomfortable playing with a gay player," and I knew that that was that I did something well in that moment because then we were able to have a full you know, talk about it. And what's great is that when you leave a session and one player who was a little bit uncomfortable playing with someone gay says, hey, Wade, thank you for letting me talk. I really learned a lot. Here's my phone number, mm. and I want to talk about it more. And wow. those players have been the ones who have been much more active in doing uh, in doing outreach. So we also partnered with, with the NFL to create something called High Five. Mm-hmm. So we take players to visit local youth-serving LGBTQ spaces and we really work to to erase the gap that it that kind of exists between players who are straight and lgbtq kids and we've done that at the pro bowl for the last uh, three years we've taken players to we've taken trans kids to actually stand on nfl films and shake hands with players like an odell beckham in pregame like that is something that i don't think folks ever would have imagined a space like the nfl will actually exist in and for spaces like like the nhl we do trainings for all of their youth hockey so we're mm-hmm. really trying to be intentional to start to talk to kids when they're young And then also give coaches the tools to create that environment where they can actually say the words lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. And it's interesting. You mentioned that uh, there are players have actually been receptive because I think the perception is that players wouldn't be receptive to this. Um, And what happens, I think, is that people tend to come down really hard on mistakes. Oh, yeah. They're like, why are there more out gay players? Yeah. Yeah, There tends to be a lot of like outrage and reactionary sentiment where guys are actually, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but guys just seem to be confused. Like they just don't have all the information that they kind of need to make better choices. So I would say it's a mixture of the media and the and like popular folks wanting to see this openly gay male athlete, mm-hmm. right? And what I know and that most of the media doesn't know is that there are a good number of players who are out to their teammates. Mm-hmm. And they only tell their teammates because that's their brother or they only tell their coach because that's their father-like figure. And we have to be respectful of the, of, of the fact that most of these players have only wanted to be athletes their entire life. Once you tell the world that you're gay while you're an active player, you become a gay NHL player, mm-hmm. a gay NFL player. If you talk to Michael Sam, he just wanted to play football, right? Right. And we all are indebted to Michael Sam's courage, but we also almost made it impossible for him to be anything else but this gay male athlete. So how can we start to in- interrogate what is... What is our real reason for wanting a player to be open about his sexuality? Is it to is it to prove something to ourselves or is it to demasculinize, you know, um, these spaces? Or is it that we're actually interested in people feeling more safe to be more of their authentic self? And if it's the latter, I'm I'm all for it. But if it's just about us wanting to be in someone's business, then I think it's a little bit unfair. Now, what what is also true is that there are a lot of players who weren't ready to be in the locker room with with Michael Sam. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of players who were like, I don't care. If he can play, he can play. What we also forget is that in the 2018 age, right, you have a lot of players who have openly gay brothers, sisters, right? So, you know, the world is different, you know, than it was in 2000. 
Um, and I think that the 2018 player is much more ready um, to be able to speak about these issues because being gay is less of a taboo. It's less mythical, right? Um, I also think that the work that women have done, right, from the number of open women athletes from Alasia Clarendon to uh, Brittany Griner who are really also leading who are leading the conversation mm-hmm. and we're starting to complicate these issues of masculinity and um, and sports itself I think is in some ways leading uh, the way as our country starts to wrestle with all these other issues too and I and you brought up a really good point because women there have been a lot of out women athletes um, and they're very visible like you said Brittany Griner uh, a lot of women on the U.S. women's national team they have done a lot of the work to help people feel more comfortable mm-hmm. with that and they um, get no credit for that and, and that's what's going to say and the thing is that they've they've laid down so much of a foundation that when a male athlete a prominent male athlete mm-hmm. who is currently active playing steps down he's going to have a pretty good foundation to stand on because of all the work that they've exactly, done exactly exactly um, and this actually circles back to something that you like to, that you've talked a lot about, which is uh, the myth of masculinity. <laughs> and it is all related because it because we can't really have an out male athlete who's still playing until we start tackling our issues of what masculinity actually means. Yeah. You know, the thing that I always say is that we should not try to define what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Those are words that we have to define as an individual right so I should be able to define what manhood means to me and it mm-hmm. shouldn't be be based on my father or my uncle it should be how do I want to show up in the world how do I want to um, to make the world better for myself and for other people I think that we're in a space now where we're looking to mimic the ways that other folks show up and we're less interested in interrogating like what do I think it means to be a man? Like, mm-hmm. what is masculinity? Like, what is being feminine? And as as long as the words exist, as as long as being a man is in opposition of what it means to to be a woman, we will always be in trouble. And men will will always feel that they have to oppress women in order to show up as who they are. And we have to realize that that it's all on a spectrum, right? And and how do we stop? trying to define these actual words and really start to interrogate like who we are as people. And we tend to exist in binaries, right? Like there are always oppositional binaries, male and female. And I think it's very hard for people to understand that it does not have to be that way. And it shouldn't be that way, right? Right. You know, there are times when I want to be, for lack of a better word, very, very feminine, right? Oh, I want to Vogue down or (laughs) or dip and sing some Whitney Houston, right? But there are other times where I want to play with bugs, right? But neither one of those are manly or womanly. Like, those are just parts of me. But we have put that if you play with bugs or you play in the dirt or if you don't shower and bathe, then you're acting like a boy, right? And if you want to spin around and sing, you're acting like a girl. But, like, that's actually not true. Like, those are just human things that humans do. Yeah, and we've just kind of imposed that gender classification on these activities. Um, toxic, Toxic masculinity is something that I find up comes up a lot in sports. Um, we can talk about this in relation to the NFL draft, but the example that always stands out to me is how people react to injured players. So yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, we're in the NHL postseason at the moment, and a lot of players are playing through injuries. There was one report about a player who was had been playing with a torn MCL. And we have a tendency to really aggrandize these things of like, oh, it's so great, versus maybe taking a step back and we and saying maybe that wasn't great for his health so what athletes have to go through 
to to try to attain this level seems very destructive. You know, I'm I was thinking about this the other day, like the subtle ways that I was as as a boy. Right. The subtle ways, like almost unnoticed ways that people reinforced mm-hmm. that I needed to be tough. Right. So I remember like that I used to play in my backyard with about 40 of us. And we would just play this game called Smear the Queer. And um, and the idea wow. is that, yeah, exactly right. That's a whole nother type of conversation, <laughs> like, wait, right? That's a whole different story. But I remember, like, there would be a kid who would get hit really hard. And everyone would stand around and watch. And then the kid would get up and people would go, oh, he's okay. No one ever checked on him, right? Yeah. But just being okay meant that you could continue. But no one ever asked the question, like, are you okay? Like, did that hurt? And people would actually go, oh, no, he's okay because he's tough. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's subtle, and it, and you don't even realize that it's being reinforced in you as a child. And then as you get a little older and you start playing ball in high school and you learn this phrase that, that's called you can't make the club in the tub, mm-hmm. which means that you can't make the team if you're always in the, in the training room, right? So, right. and sports is such a competitive space that you don't want to show any form of weakness or show that you're, in the tub because someone else can take your spot so you learn that you have to play through injury the other thing that you you learn is that coaches will ask you a question they'll go are you hurt or are you injured Ooh. if you're hurt you can keep on playing if you're injured then get off the field but those are very subtle ways and you learn these and i wasn't asked those questions in the nfl i was asked those questions during little league Mm-hmm. You know, so these things are ingrained in you. So by the time you get to college, by the time that you're in the NFL or, or the NHL, you actually start to have to learn how to unlearn those because they're so deeply entrenched in in who you are. I think the other thing as a society, um, we don't get to witness war firsthand. Right. Football, basketball, hockey are our ways that we get to watch war happen in front of us because oftentimes they're competition for land. Mm -hmm. You know, like to get 10 yards, I'm taking space from you, right? You know, once I get past half court, I'm taking space from you. So how how are we kind of as a country using sports um, to fulfill our own desires for violence and all of those things? And the sports themselves... I don't believe are the issue. It's what we place on them. And know? and our expectations of these athletes. Yeah. I mean, women also, but I feel like, especially for men, it's it's very different perception that they have to face. Uh, we're about, we're a few days away from the NFL draft. What kind of league do you think these uh, prospects are, are going into? And how has it changed from when you played? I think that, that the league is in a, is in a period of self-reflection, right? So I've been really fortunate to work very closely with Roger Goodell, with Troy Benson, and unlike what most people think, um, those gentlemen have been allies in really trying to do work to create an NFL that's more safe and and inclusive, right? And what we're really trying to get at is how do we start to have these discussions with these young men in college and in high school Mm -hmm. so that by the time that they get to the NFL, they're different types of human beings, right? So I wasn't out in high school. I wasn't out in college. If I wasn't out in those spaces, I wasn't going to now come to the NFL and and risk all of my money to to be out then, right? So how do we start to do the work in, in earlier spaces? But I think that players are entering into the league at a space where players have more power. Mm-hmm. Like they have more power from a social media stamp standpoint, from a visibility standpoint to understanding their own individual power. 
Um, and I think that the league and um, the players themselves are kind of wrestling for how do we create this new type of league where it's not just what the owners say, what the what the coaches say actually goes. Players and coaches are realizing that, hey, like that this has to be more of a shared experience, that this is our league. Mm-hmm. It's not just uh, the owner's league any, anymore. And I think that um, that there's a wrestling that's happening. You definitely see that in the NBA. It feels like the NBA players seem to have a lot more power within their teams. And I don't know if that's just my perception as a person in the media and kind of on the outside. Um, But it definitely seems like there is a shift happening. Yeah. um, I think players are just much more aware and Mm -hmm. informed, right? Um, Rarely do you meet a player now um, who doesn't understand the business of the league more. Rarely do you meet a player now um, who's not asking his or her agent different types of questions. Rarely do you meet a player now that is not wanting to use their platform to fight against all the isms that mm-hmm. are out there. And the league is having to wrestle with, okay, how do I create space for that? You know, one of the great things that we did is we took a group of players to Morehouse College and we created kind of a boot camp to educate players on, like, what's the history of activism um, how do you take your activism from off the field to in your community in more effective ways? How do you get get players to use their their platform in in ways that works in concert with the league and not in opposition? Because if if you destroy these leagues, then there's no more league, right? So and players have the right to be able to protest. Players should use their platforms to do this type of work. So how do you do the and both and right. not the either or? Is really the space that we're in. This is a nice segue. We've talked a little bit about sexuality and equality. We have not talked a lot about race, which is something that is, <laughs> I know, I, and we're coming up on, I know you kind of have a hard out in a few minutes. No, no. But um, race is a huge issue still in, in locker rooms everywhere yeah. and something that in a way is a lot more uncomfortable to talk about because we feel like we have surpassed it. And that is not the case. Um, One of the things I think that sports has that the corporate world is is without is that you can talk about anything in the in the locker room. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that is true is that players are talking about race and racism in the locker room. Whereas if you're on your job, you just can't talk about you know Mike Brown. You know, like it's a different type of an environment. Right. But in the locker room, everything is open. What you're seeing is that those discussions are actually spilling out onto the field. Okay. Right. Um, so. I think that it's an outcome of the fact that these discussions have always been being had, right? I remember talking to a Jason Collins, and he talked about how, you know, even pre to coming out, there were times when players talked about homophobia and, and all of those things, whereas I don't remember ever on any job that I've ever had, except for my social justice activism type jobs, where you could talk about these issues. Um, so in some ways, and it's not perfect, sports have actually push that in front of us because now when I'm working with an organization, they're having to talk about race and sexism and all of these things. And the impact of the Me Too movement is impacting corporations, right? So I think that we're living in a world now where what what happens after work, what happens off the field spills into the workplace and spills into the locker room more freely than it ever has. One of the things that I always wonder about, too, is that if you are kind of uh, not in a position to be a direct advocate for these issues, how do you be a good ally? Wow. So the first way I believe to be a good ally is you have to educate yourself, right? So I don't want people to ever think that um, if they want to ask me about race or sexual orientation that, one, I'm the end-all, be-all, right? Mm -hmm. So what pre-homework can you do as an individual if you're truly interested in these issues to educate yourself? 
Two, I think that um, you can own the fact that if you are of the dominant space, so whether you're heterosexual, whether you're a man, whether you're masculine of presenting, that you have a bias, mm-hmm. right? So how can you own the fact that I do have a bias? Like I'm known as a feminist, but I'm also sexist, right? So as long as I can understand that I'm struggling with these issues, I can continue to to educate myself and do the work so I can continue to grow. So I, I think with all of these subjects that we're kind of dealing with right now, people have to educate themselves first, own that they have biases, and then um, be intentional to put themselves in spaces where they are the other, right? So right. if you are a white person and all of your friends are white, how can you be more intentional to diversify your friendship groups, right? Like if you look on your Facebook page and everybody that you that you post about is all the exact same, you're probably not being a good ally. Um, last thing I'll say is allies are word of action. Mm-hmm. You can't name yourself an ally. Someone of an of the marginalized group has to say that you've done the work. You're creating the spaces. You're 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 active in your allyship. It's just not something that you wake up and go, "Well, I support women, so I'm I'm an ally." No one cares. The question is, what are you actually doing? So we have a video producer, Evan, and he likes to say, "She's invited to the cookout." Like that is that <laughs> exactly. is his yeah. way of saying yeah. you're okay. You're an ally. But um, then bring something to the cookout, right? Like <laughs> yes. don't don't just show up. Bring some mac and cheese, right? You yeah, know? bring some potato salad. Yeah, bring something. Exactly. Um, but yes, I think that's a that's a really good point. Is that you can't do it to yourself. Uh, My last question for you, again, like I know you've got a heart out. uh, You have identified yourself as a feminist uh, and it's the first word in your Twitter bio. (laughs) That's intentional. Exactly. It's not an accident. There was a lot of thought behind that. Do you think more athletes need to do that? I think more athletes won't have to um, interrogate what would cause them to want to name themselves a feminist Mm -hmm. first, right? Um, It's it's a label that I put out intentionally so people can hold me accountable, Mm -hmm. right? Like I just don't put it out there because it's a good, it's a good term, but I want people to go, oh, you're a feminist? What'd you do today? Yeah. Right. So there's a there's an accountability that I want to put myself for. I do think more athletes should enable themselves as feminists if they understand what it means, if they um, if they want to embody it. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if you're going to read about it and it's such a powerful word, it's such a freeing word. It's a word that um, that I think I've always been right, Mm -hmm. but just didn't didn't have the language for. So I'm grateful that folks like Gloria Steinem, uh, Bell Hooks, uh, Janet Mock, um, like Laverne Cox, like all of these women, specifically women of color, have laid themselves bare for me to understand um, whose shoulders that I'm standing on right. and um, and how I can show up in, in the world better. And what I love about our conversation right now is that we're both, is that you keep saying that this is a process. This is not something that you can kind of just achieve and then coast on. Everybody has all these behaviors, all these biases that are internalized, that they're constantly confronting day after day. Uh, so you're never going to wake up and be perfectly woke one day. Yeah, I'm never <laughs> going to land at some meditation where, I'm, where I go, wow, like I get it now unless yeah. I'm dead. Right. (laughs) Right. But like that's the only way that my journey towards being a better human being ends. Yeah. That this is a constant conversation. This is a constant dialogue that we need to be having as a society. Um, And I know we've drifted a little bit away from our (laughs) our initial thing um, of what happens on the field. But I think it's very relevant. And the the personal is political. Right. Right. So it doesn't matter where we're talking about sports or masculinity or whatever. It connects at some point because all of those ideas exist within us. Yeah. Um, well, Wade, thank you so much for taking the time to thank talk to us. Thank you for having me. Uh, what do you have coming up? 
So I am going to be speaking um, at the Time's Up Now okay. event in Tribeca with folks like Ashley Judd and Marissa Torme and Whippy Goldberg. And I'm grateful that these women have welcomed me into their space. And I hope not to screw it up. Uh, <laughs> from, from there, I'm going to do some work with Netflix and um, have some more meetings with some folks out in Hollywood. Woo, who Woo. Knew? Well, I'm so glad that you could make the time to come, come talk to us and hang out in our little studio. Wade, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Bye, guys. <laughs>